what I've learned in, in my life and when I was working at UN Women, and I, were, I talked to politicians and I tried to convince them that they should do the right thing, I realized that sometimes I was not being heard. Welcome to Network 2020's audio edition of this virtual event. Be sure to check out our other events, media, and videos at network2020.org. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Courtney Doggard. I'm the president of Network 2020. And I just want to welcome everyone to Network 2020's discussion on human rights with Michelle Bachelet, the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights. Uh, for those of you who are joining us for the first time, Network 2020 is an international community that discusses and drives innovative solutions to foreign policy challenges. As part of our mission, we organize talks on critical topics in foreign affairs, and this talk today is part of our global leadership series, for which we've heard from the likes of Joseph Nye and Kishore Mahbubani already. The pandemic that we are in is a health crisis, it's an economic crisis, and it's a social crisis. And each of these crises lead to tremendous stresses on human rights worldwide. We are honored, therefore, to have Michelle Bachelet with us today to speak about this critical issue. And we're also delighted that we have Network 2020 board member, Sava Thomas, who is also from Chile, just as Michelle Bachelet is, um, who will introduce the High Commissioner before we engage in a moderated conversation followed by audience Q&A. So Sava, over to you. Thank you. Thank you, Cordy. It is a pleasure and an honor to introduce today's speaker, High Commissioner Michelle Bachelet. Due to our time constraints, and because I know that you all want to have as much time as possible to hear from her, I will refer only to a few of her many accomplishments. Uh, two years ago, Michelle Bachelet assumed her current position as the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights. Prior to that, Michelle Bachelet had been elected twice on separate occasions, President of Chile. She has been the only female female president of Chile. Uh, before becoming president, she served as a health minister, as well as Chile's and Latin America first female defense minister. Among her many achievements as president of Chile is the creation of the National Institute for Human Rights and the Museum of Memory and Human Rights as do the establishment of the Ministry of Women and Gender Equality, the adoption of quotas to increase women's political participation, and the approval of the Civil Union Act legislation, granting rights to same-sex couples, and thus advancing LGBT rights. Since the beginning of the 1990s, she has worked tirelessly with international organizations fighting for the rights of women and girls internationally, including gender equality, women's economic empowerment, and ending violence against women. It is my pleasure to leave you with Michelle Bachelet. Welcome, Michelle. Bienvenida. Muchas gracias, Saba. Thank you very much, Saba. Greetings, and thank you for inviting me to speak to this audience at this very challenging moment for everyone. We are facing, as you all know, a global pandemic, climate catastrophes, and a massive global recession. 
With COVID-19, a fast-moving and global health crisis has collided with many slower and more entrenched political, social, and economic crises around the world. Those multiple underlying fractures, which have made us more vulnerable to this virus and create entry points for its harms, can result from gaps in human rights protection. Discrimination and inequalities create intense suffering for affected communities and increase the vulnerability of all of society. Repression and crackdowns on people who criticize or speak up deprive all of us of the benefit of people's experiences, contributions, and views. COVID-19, which zeroes in on these vulnerabilities and failures of protection, is shaking the foundation of our world, has brought turmoil and uncertainty to every country. But COVID-19 is also teaching us a number of lessons. You've asked me to reflect today on what the world's landscape of human rights will look like after the pandemic. But I think that depends very much on how well and quickly we grasp and implement those lessons. The first lesson of COVID-19 is it is demonstration of the profound value of human rights-based approaches. Inequalities and discrimination don't only harm the individuals who are directly and unfairly harmed. They also create shockwaves that damage all of society. And with COVID-19, we see this very clearly. Policies that up uphold our equality and which deliver universal and equal access to social protections and health care. Institutions with prom which promote respect for the views and rights of all members of society. Laws that require accountable policing and access to justice support greater social and economic resilience. These principles in action are the foundation of prosperity and political stability. They protect vulnerable people and all of us from the worst impacts of crisis, which means they also help to avert the escalation of tensions and grievances into violence and conflict. In other words, in order to navigate this pandemic insecurity, we need more empowerment and more participation by civil society. We need to build up human rights-based systems to protect and cherish the people who are the greatest resources of any country and the only bottom line that really counts. We need to devise policies that are grounded in right, democracy, and rule of law so that we can minimize the devastating social, economic, and humanitarian consequences of COVID-19 and build back societies that are resilient and fair. There's a second lesson that I want to highlight, an old lesson, but it's just as relevant and life-changing how, how it was in 1963, when Martin Luther King wrote in his letter from a jail in Birmingham, Alabama, that all of us, and I will quote him, are caught in an escapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all, end of quote. To effectively protect us from crisis, all of us require not only national, but also regional and global policies that prioritize civil, political, economic, social, and cultural rights. So we should be building global support for sustainable, inclusive, and climate-sensitive growth, both at home and around the world, because no one is safe if everyone is not safe. And it should be clear to all of us that a greater effort by everyone to fulfill the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development would have mitigated a great deal of the suffering we see today. We badly need to strongly advance on that agenda in the coming decade. Because yes, the world will recover from COVID-19. 
The question is, will we recover better? This will be among, among the great challenges of our lifetime. We can rebuild in ways that uphold human rights, knowing that these principles will create more resilient, inclusive, sustainable, and greener societies. In that case, we will not be able to prevent or deflect every crisis, but we will, be, we will survive those crises in better shape. Because it is these principles that build more stable, more peaceful, and more adaptable societies with dialogue, cooperation, and respect. So I look forward to our conversation right now. Thank you so much for those uh, for those introductory remarks, and and I and I do hope that that this is one instance where a real tragedy can be turned into um, an opportunity for for building back in a more resilient way. Um, you know, just to dive in on a couple of questions and to follow up on something that you touched on, where um, where the pandemic I think really has um, shown instances of, of governments using COVID-19 to weaken human rights, um, for example, limiting uh, freedom of expression uh, by attacking freedom of express, uh, expression or banning uh, public demonstrations. Do you see some of these rollbacks that you had mentioned um, staying in place after the pandemic and what can be done to avoid that? Yeah, I think the short answer is yes. There will be those who will defend the rollbacks, but we have the tools to strike back. So we must remember that the tide against those who do human rights work, who stand up against the abuse of power, corruption, discriminatory policies was strong even before COVID-19. So the excuse of the health emergency has been used by some government to further restrict civic space and seeking to silence uh, human rights defenders and others, at least I we've seen it in two ways. One way is by imposing laws and decrees based on the health emergency that contain overly broad bans on content and restrict the voicing of opinion to prevent critical discussion from taking place. For example, restriction in terms of what defenders, including health workers, experts, and journalists are allowed or not to say about government measures against COVID-19. But the second way they have done it is to use vaguely defined provisions linked to the need to contain and combat the spread of COVID-19 to criminalize the work and punish defenders, journalists, and opposition. As a result, individuals who seek to keep information flowing, who act as whistleblowers, or those who disobey wrong orders now face charges and risk imprisonment. But in the current context, more than ever, we need information to flow and people to have access to more information because we need the battle of ideas and we need to ensure it can happen in a safe environment. That means we have to redouble efforts too. First of all, monitor how COVID is used to restrict civic space and to document undue restrictions to build the evidence that we need to conduct effective advocacy. Let me tell you something. In the international human rights law does permit certain restrictions during exceptional situations being it like COVID, like pandemic or earthquake and so on. But there are certain freedoms that you can restrict. I mean, you could restrict, for example, the freedom of assembly because you don't want to be people congregated or you can restrict the freedom of uh, mobility, but you can never restrict the freedom of press, expression and others. Um, so we can, con and, and the second thing is when you do those special measures, they have to be, first of all, needed. Second, appropriate to the real need. They have to be time bound and they have to be really explained to this and, and say for how long and explain to the society why huh, that this is needed. So I said, first we have to monitor the use of these restricted uh, 
measures. Second, recognize civil society effort. And recognition has, I would say, two sides. We need to find more inspiring ways of telling the stories of defenders and human rights more generally. And we must ensure continued funding for human rights work. Because one of the things that has happened in the field is that governments, even governments who gave money at the time for the NGOs or civil society, they have said that they needed to combat COVID-19 and they diverted those money to other places. And many of those who were working on the ground, even um, that could be helpful on the COVID-19 experience, they are not receiving money anymore. So I think that particularly for those that do critical reporting and shed light on negative effects, probably they're using this excuse not to fund them. Yeah? And, and, and the third thing I would say to protect those who speak up, uh, the virus is a great reminder that we have to ensure safety, but it, we also need to stigmatize the silence um, but also with the silence of those who speak up. See, the, the intent to silence those who really are able to want to speak up. All right. Th th thank you for that answer, and and, and thank you for your work and uh, and and trying to keep uh, keep those the, those lanes of communication open. Um, and existing in in addition to exacerbating existing inequalities, COVID nineteen has also revealed some um, really some new problems that we have aren't yet prepared to address. And a lot of those, even um, I think you touched almost on some of them when it comes to information, but, um, but technology is an area that, that comes to mind. Um, what are some of these new human rights that you feel we should be focusing on in the immediate future? Well, while I agree with you that COVID-19 has revealed new problems and exacerbated old ones, I don't think that this calls for new human rights necessarily, because they're already, I mean, the, the framework that we have includes many of them already. But we need to think how we deal with them, if they need, we need to be regulated and so on. So rather what we think is that it highlights the need to promote efforts uh, into living up to the commitments made by in the international human rights framework, hmm? relating to an extremely broad range of topics from education, health, social protection, equality to freedom of expression or privacy. Hmm? Um, I think the growing reliance on technologies in the COVID-19 context is an opportunity. If we are creative and innovative, if use accessible and safe digital channels to engage with the public, and for example, also to recognize and address something that has been, I would say painfully clear, even though we knew it from before, is the digital divides, including the gender divide. It will help to reach more communities and people that were previously excluded. I mean, it's not something new. They were already excluded. But if we are able to, to address that, we could amplify the voices that will help to strengthen, I would say, alternative narrative to the populist and nationalistic ones. Um, but tech also have the potential for central control that goes beyond anything that has ever been experienced and that could have significant impact on human rights. COVID-19 has highlighted the challenges that come with new technologies and social media, such as, unfortunately, incitement to hatred, violence, and tracing surveillance. And not saying tracing of the contacts, I'm talking about tracing human rights defenders and so on like that. Huh? I mean, we're looking at the dark part, if I may say. So I think we need to share lessons learned as they become available. My office is using our convening power to bring together those actors that can help to put dignity at the center of the conversation on tech and inject human rights as the yardsticks of, for developing the online universe. 
I think a, a critical area for building back better is ensuring that the online spaces do not exacerbate offline discrimination and inequality. Because as I said, there's various uh, digital divides, both within societies and across the globe and are a major concern. As we know too well, almost half of the world's population have no access to the internet and less than 20% of people in least developed countries can connect. And that was a real problem with children who, whose schools were closed and could not continue that, to do it online. So the COVID-19 crisis should be a wake up call to take more action to bridge all those digital divides. But in this context, the other thing that we should pay more attention to is the prevalence of internet shutdowns. In, because in many countries they are used as an excuse and they have put this internet shutdowns. Because in a global health crisis of the present scale, uh, they literally can cause death and devastation because if you don't have the information, you have the access, it can produce very bad uh, consequences. For, for example, we hear a lot about COVID-19 misinformation on social media. But can you imagine the level of rumors, false information, misconceptions among those who have been cut off from public health messages, global information flows, etc.? On the other side of the spectrum, we see a push for deploying data-driven tools. Obviously, the right to privacy and the related need to protect personal data have dramatically gained in importance. We need modern, fit-for-purpose data protection and governance regimes including enforcement mechanisms that ensure that the privacy, the autonomy, and agency of all is protected. But around one third of the countries don't have any data protection laws at all, or many are outdated. So much can and needs to be done to bridge the gap. So the international community should increase collaboration in this area. But the other thing that is important is that um, the multifaceted effects of data-driven solutions require safeguards that go beyond personal data protection. And one important tool that ensures that human rights will be baked in from the get-go is human rights due diligence. Public and private sectors should systematically conduct such due diligence throughout the entire life cycle of new digital systems that can materially affect people's life. To be honest, for example, at a time when school exams are canceled due to lockdown measures, using data-driven tools that assess students' performance may sound like a sensible idea um, to protect life and health, but if those tools are built around past school performance, they probably will favor students enrolled in better schools. So how we deal not to increase the inequalities, for example. So thereby they risk reflecting and reinforcing existing discrimination, including racial discrimination. So such risks should be identified and adequate measures be taken from the early stages of developing such program and certainly before their rollout. One of the things we have been discussing with our companies is that it's not that after you develop all the platforms and algorithms and so on that you see which can be the bad consequences. From the beginning, even when you don't decide it yet, you have to understand which can be the, the bad consequences. And on the contrary, as I've been talking to many of them, to be sure that it's tech for good. 
Thank you for that. Um, and, and actually, I've, I have two two very different follow up questions, um, and I'll, I'll I'll reverse the the order that that I wanted to follow them up in. Um, you had mentioned companies actually, and so I'd be curious to hear a little bit about your projection of the role of private corporations in um, in advancing human rights, um, as well as working with governments. And, and, and do you see that balance of uh, changing in terms of importance? Well. Um I mean, we have understood, and I think we, I think one of the discussions that today we see in the world is how we strengthen multilateralism. Because usually, I mean, we understand, I understand, maybe not every agree on me, but we're facing global challenges. And for global challenges, you need global responses. But in the past, when we're talking about multilateralism, international community, people mainly were focusing on governments, states, member states. But I think more and more, and we see it in many areas, we understand that international community is much more than that. And we have big alliances in many areas where it is, of course, the member state, but it's also civil society, the academia, scientists, or, and of course, uh, youth, but also private sector. And we have been working with the private sector. We, we do have an area of business and human rights before COVID-19, right? uh, business and human rights, because we do believe I mean, in the past, we did believe that there was, was a lot of companies who did violate, I mean, uh, you know, in the international language, um, violation of human rights is only uh, state-driven. And, but for the other actors, it's called abuses of human rights. Huh? Uh, violation is only act, agent, agent of, the, of the state. So, but we did have a lot of situations with companies who did abuses, if I may say, did not respect the, the human rights of the late, the, the workers or indigenous communities and so on. And we started, we developed the, the UN guiding principles of business and human rights. And we have been working with the business sector to try to reach out to much more companies that they can ensure that through the whole, uh, I would say, um, the whole um, chain will include human rights. And, and that means from um, security uh, policies inside, the labor conditions, but also uh, the capacity of, of workers to organize themselves to, for example, uh, be very aware and, and prohibit uh, like enforced labor, child labor, uh, mother's ways of slavery, et cetera, et cetera. So this is something we have been working with them and many companies have understood that this is very important because at the end it's a, it's a reputational risk. No? And more and more people are interconnected and when they know that certain companies do it wrong, of course, people tend to, of course, punish them, not buying the product and so on. So they also understand that it's ethically adequate, that is the, the, the right thing to do, but it's also the smart thing to do. But in this new context uh, of, of COVID-19, we have always been reaching out to them to see how, for example, because COVID-19 is having a lot of social and economic consequences, how they can uh, respond in a way that we can sort of mitigate and diminish the impact of, of social uh, and economic content. And I say they have been, uh, we have been advancing on that, that because they understood that they have a responsibility on this regard. And, and I think, as I said, that is that many of them are, do understand and many countries on the other hand are developing with business, uh, national action plans of business and human rights, independently of COVID-19. But now soon we're going to launch because we have been launching a lot of guidelines on COVID-19 and human and women, COVID-19 and, and um, all the people. And now we're going to uh, 
launch a guidance of COVID-19 and business and human rights to see what in concrete we can recommend them to do more on this regard. Terrific. That, that, that sounds very interesting. We'll have to uh, check that out. Um, you had also mentioned your guidelines on women, which, which was the second follow-up question that I had referenced um, in particular to education. Um, just because the related problem that we're seeing in the pandemic is a reversal of women's rights, um, studies show that one in four women are considering changing their careers or leaving the workforce altogether due to the pandemic, which can largely be attributed to caregiving as well as the need to monitor education during this time. Uh, what steps and what guidelines have you put in place to ensure that, um, that women's rights aren't permanently damaged? Well, I would say we, we have a risk of uh, going backwards in many rights, not only in, the, in women at the workplace, but that's one, of course, that is very important. But we have another one that even more important worldwide is that, uh, you know, in many countries, the informal economy is very important. And in many of those, in some places, even 70% of the economy is informal economy. And uh, many of those, the majority are women, are the ones who are part of that. And the informal economy, uh, they don't have access to anything because they usually don't exist, if I may say, in terms of being registered like that or having able to uh, be um, a beneficiary for uh, social schemes or all these kind of subsidies and so on. So what I think there's no doubt that there is a risk of losing ground on the considerable progress that has been made in the past decades on women's rights. And I think there is clearly a dramatic impact on women's work some, as you said, have to take the decision to leave the job to respond to an increased unpaid care work. And I will share with you some numbers. In Europe and Central Asian region, 25% of the self-employed women lost their jobs, and 49% of self-employed women saw reduced working hours. Women and girls are reporting increased levels of, um, uh, of gender-based violence, including domestic violence, and we have seen it all over the world. Economic losses are exposing girls to survival sex. We have seen increase of child marriage and female genital mutilation. 90% of children of the world have had their education interrupted due to COVID-19, we were talking about it before. When not at school, girls face additional risk of child marriage and child pregnancy. And 7.6 million girls uh, from pre-primary to secondary school are at risk of no returning to school of COVID, uh, because of COVID-19. Additionally, the lack of sexual and reproductive health services leading to prediction that we'll have 56, 7,000 additional maternal deaths probably, 47 million women without access to these services uh, to a family planning. And we have expect, and we expect 7 million unintended pregnancy. So yet uh, women reality are not often at the center of the response. According to the recent assessment done by UN Women and UNDP, among 2,517 measures taken in 206 countries and territories in response to COVID, less than half are gender sensitive. Only 48 countries have integrated measures to prevent and respond violence against women and girls because they consider those services or the shelters or the service as essential. Only about 10% of total fiscal, economic, social protection and jobs responses address women's economic insecurity, and only 8% of the social protection and labor market measures taken in response to COVID-19 directly address unpaid care. So I think that we must enhance integration of human rights and equality, including gender equality in all response plans. 
I mean, when we're talking that we need to build back better, we among other things, we're saying, look, you need to think an economy that's more inclusive, that we can fight inequalities, because this pandemic let bear those problems. They were there before, but now it's having a particular impact. So we must also remember that not all women are impacted equally by the crisis. That's the other important thing. Because we consistently see that women from marginalized and disadvantaged groups are faring worse. Ethnic minority women, indigenous women, migrant women workers, women with disabilities, older women, they have particular. So the thing is that we need to look at the data and try to identify policies to all these particular situations. We, we need to recognize our existing societal model built on a structural and ingrained inequalities is not sustainable. Mm? Uh, and with women at the center and post-COVID world, we need to better recognize the indivisibility of human rights, uh, the interlinkages between health, work, education, housing, equal rights and responsibility of women and men in the family, including unpaid care work, participation of civic engagement would be more resilient and responsive. Uh, I think we need more women in the places where decisions have been made. Uh, if you see the majority of these um, committees to respond to COVID-19, the majority were men, very few places you have women. And uh, I think that women's voice would be lifted so that the priorities will correspond to their realities and put it into practice. And it is not surprise for me that the countries which are praised for navigating this pandemic in the most successful manner from the top, I mean, in the first way, I'm not going to talk about the second way. In the first way, there were 12 countries said that they were done at the best, seven were led by women. So I think we should recognize the contribution that women can have. I think the women leaders show that they really have great leadership. They can make very strong decisions. That they, but on the other hand, they can hear the voices of the people. They can be very transparent. They can talk to, with the truth. And many times they're trusted and people believe on what they're asking, saying, or deciding. So I'm not saying, I think we need more women everywhere and in particular. Because ILO is really concerned about your initial question, that this could mean a, a really setback on many progress. So that's probably the answer will not be the same in, any, in every country. Because for example, when I was in, in my country president, we developed a lot of uh, uh, kindergarten and nurseries. And here, for example, in Switzerland, one of the first things that uh, uh, was lifted out of the restriction was nurseries and kindergarten. So, so mothers and parents will could continue working. So there's lots of different strategies that can be followed depending on the situation of the country we're talking about. Wonderful, thank you for that. Um, I did have some more questions of my own, but there are a lot of questions coming in on the Q&A and because I know we'll need to leave um, a few minutes early before the hour to get you to your next meeting, I wanted to turn to the Q&A box now. And so our first question is from Ken Moskowitz and he asks, how can the promotion of human rights and democracy be reconciled with realpolitik? Is Machiavelli right? that it is immoral for a government leader to pursue human rights when other states are coldly pursuing their national interests. What answer do you have to Trump's America first and why should Americans care about human rights, rights abuses in Tibet or North Korea? Well, I mean, it's not always easy to reconcile human rights with real politics 
in terms of if there's no political will in a country to respect and promote human rights, it's very difficult to ensure that that will happen. But what I've learned in, in my life and when I was working at UN Women, and I, were, I talked to politicians and I tried to convince them that they should do the right thing, I realized that sometimes I was not being heard. And, uh, or I received the most incredible answers. Oh, don't worry, I love women and so on, things like that. And they were not getting the point. So I started realizing that if I wanted to defend human rights, it should be to explain that that was the right thing to do, but also the smart thing to do. So try to show with examples, et cetera, et cetera. And the same has to be with human rights. You have to be able to explain why human rights is the right thing to do, but also the smart thing to do. How in societies where you uh, ensure human rights, you have societies that are more resilient, more peaceful, more cohesive. So you will be having less conflicts. And of course we will have conflict because human rights cannot avoid preventing every other kind of issues. Because for example, today one of the issues that we see is the intersecting between COVID-19, migration, climate change, uh, and so on, and conflict, of course. So if you, but, but we know that if you ensure people, that when you go to see many conflicts all over the world, what you see is, for example, a place where 70% of the population is under 35 years old, but from that, 70% are unemployed. So then comes an armed group like, uh, which, which was the, uh, Boko Haram, for example, and tells those young people in some country of Africa, if you come with us, uh, we will give you a gun, power, some money, and, and, ex, and et cetera, et cetera. So we will be avoiding a lot of issues that today we're living on peace and security if we can ensure that those people have access to education and, and have access to certain jobs with minimal, um, if I would say, conditions of, because we are all human beings. So I would say, I think we could prevent lots of things from happening if human rights will be pushed everywhere and respected everywhere. The second thing that I think is important is that every country has problems. Even in the US, you have issues. And every country has to look itself. I mean, I'm not only talking about what this has been more known, like, you know, the racial discrimination, racism and police brutality, um, but also other issues. I mean, uh, for example, when you see that in COVID-19 pandemic, the majority of people who die are Afro-American or Latinos, but even in a bigger rate than the rate in the population and poor people, it means that those people have not, have, have been in some way left behind or there are problems of their access to health, or, or whatever. So I think every country has, look, has to look at themselves inside. Of course, you have to look at the world and has to be committed to the world because it's important. We need countries to be championing human rights, but we need also countries to be looking inside and solving the human rights problems. In some are violation, in some can be intended or unintended, but that every country has. And, 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 and I think uh, in particular in this case, when there will be social and economic devastating consequences, you will have more poverty, you will have people with hunger, and you need to take care of that because that is to try to ensure certain basic human rights to everyone. And the last thing, why should 
somebody in the U.S. be be um, in be linked to some other problem of another part of the world is because, as we see today, we are so interconnected that uh, one problem in some part of the world can be affecting the other part of the world. So I think the best thing for all of us, if everyone is in better condition, has better uh, human rights are protected. All right, th thank you very much. Um, for the next question, I'm going to turn to one from Alexei Nikitin, who is from Russia. And he says that, um, uh, undoubtedly, the human rights situation in the world is very difficult. For example, this year we have witnessed monstrous violations of human rights by the Belarusian authorities. Um, at the same time, some states actually cover up these crimes and the UN does not have significant leverage to stop violations. Do you think it might be worthwhile to empower your office and other UN human rights bodies with more weighty power so that it can adequately respond to such actions and somehow resist them? So talking about the role of the UN and dealing with human rights violations. Well, I, I would tell you that, uh, that we have different, in, at the UN there's different, um, I would say, mechanisms to deal with issues in a different way. Uh, the human rights, there is a human rights, UN human rights system that is composed of an office, that is the one that I am the high commissioner of the Office of Human Rights of the UN. We have a human rights council that is composed of member states that discuss issues and, and discuss country situation and make resolutions and make decisions and make recommendations. Then we have the special procedures that those, those are the special rapporteurs that can be thematic of country situation as well and group of experts. So we have, for example, the group of experts of Yemen who go to Yemen and do a report on the situation of violation of human rights in Yemen and they come back and give recommendations to the governments and they follow it or don't follow it. Uh, and, and of course, and, and to the parties when there's a conflict, they can give recommendations. Um, there are the other things that's called the treaty bodies. The treaty bodies, they are either conventions or uh, uh, treaties that member states have been signed and ratified that is legally binding. I mean, of course, you cannot hold them accountable and put them in jail if they don't do it. But, but what I mean is they are obliged because they sign an obligation to commit to those things. So from our system, and, and we, what we do is we monitor uh, all everywhere where we have our people, violation of human rights in different moments, uh, in pre-electoral and electoral and post-electoral situation. We're not involved in the electoral system, but on the violation of human rights, that usually there's a lot of violence in the pre-electoral or electoral or post-electoral situation in many parts of the world. We have to monitor uh, violation of human rights in conflict, where there's gender-based violence, for example, uh, and we monitor and we try to identify perpetrators of, in the case in some minute there will be a tribunal or something, they can be brought to the tribunal and, and held them accountable. Uh, we, but on the other hand, we have the mandate to engage with governments, to provide them with, to, with technical assistance, capacity building, because in some places, maybe the violation of human rights can be intended. And in some other places, it's because they don't know how to do it. We do try to train security forces so they can do their job in compliance with human rights laws and international laws and, human, uh, and humanitarian international laws. So yes, I mean, we, we need, we, we do need, I mean, as an office, we do need 
and we do reports and we do reports for the Secretary General who presents it to the General Assembly. But many of the things that could be, if I may say, an early action, because we can do early warnings, but early action in those particular places where it's more conflict related is more the Security Council. We can more do advocacy, give recommendations, make follow-up because there is an instrument called universal periodic review where countries have to present the, their human rights situation every four years and then they, and NGOs and civil society can go and produce shadow reports. So though this is something that's an interesting instrument because countries are follow-up. They have to come after two years and a half and present the progress done. And if not, they will have new recommendations and they will come public. And I think what is the most in you know, accountability of governments to, to go public is something really that can help in solving the problems. So that's why many times what we do is do public release, public statement, sort of highlighting and, and telling publicly what's going on. But if to be honest, what we need is more funding because we are a very small agency and, uh, and, uh, and, and we receive very little money of the whole money of the UN. So many times we would like to do much more, but we have those limits. Thank you for that. And yes, it, you, you have a, a really tremendous mandate. Um, there, there are so many terrific questions coming in. I'm sorry that, that I can't get to all of them. Um, uh, so I have one question from uh, Patricia Narvaez who asks, uh, can China be responsible for human rights violations against their minority groups or for the Hong Kong crackdown? Um, and uh, I'll, I'll, I'll just stop there. There are a few questions, but I think we'll just take with that one. Well, this is the thing that has been discussed in the Human Rights Council. And what the Human Rights Council has asked me is to go there and uh, uh, to go to, to the Xinjiang province to be, to be able to verify in, in the field on the allegations that had been uh, received. And we are in conversation with the mission of the China. They have invited me to go, but uh, we have decided to go for a meaningful visit. So we're discussing the conditions of the visit. So we hope, and, and this was advancing, but then came the COVID-19. So we had to stop this, uh, this process, but now we're resuming uh, the process in terms of uh, preparing a visit uh, when, whenever it's possible, according to what happens in, in the world, uh, that will permit us to come back and do a report that will permit us to say, look, this is the fact that we have verified in this and this and this situation. So that's what we have been asked from the Human Rights Council and that's one thing that we're working on. Okay, thank you. Um, I, I think we'll just try to take a couple more questions because I know you need to run soon. Um, we have one from Emanuela Habsburg who asks um, uh, that uh, one, one of the news anchors, Joe Scarsborough said on MSNBC this morning that the Trump administration has blood on their hair, hands regarding their approach to COVID-19. Um, just to, to frame this question a little bit, um, does something like the responsibility to protect come into play in the, in the case uh, of a global health crisis where a country is not necessarily doing what needs to be done to protect their citizens? I'm not sure, to be honest, if it had been used in this context. Usually it has been used more in a, in a context of humanitarian fragile settings this Maginti thing, but I'm not sure it has been used in the in the context of because right to protect speaks of 
also the possibility of other forces to interfere, to intervene. Huh? So I'm not sure that this has been ever used on health issues, because on health issues, we usually try to convince government with scientific and evidence data what's the thing that works and what should be done. Unfortunately, uh, we have seen certain, if I may say, uh, from some leaders in the world, we have seen the lack of uh, or, or an attack on science and, and the decision to make other kinds of decisions based on either political or economic reasons. And I understand because I've been in office that when you are in office, you also want to the economy not to die because people need, I mean, people need income and so on. But to be honest, if you don't stop the spread of the pandemic, you will never be able to resume a good level of the economy. So I think the, a bigger effort, and you see what's going on now, a lot of lockdowns again, a lot of, of, of restrictions again. So I think, as I said, the question they asked me, I'm not sure I've ever been seen it used in a health crisis, but, um, but on the case of, uh, of, of of uh, I think of the current leadership, I think current leadership should do policies according to scientific knowledge. And I think at the scientific um, communities, there's a huge agreement of what needs to be done. And I think that should be done by all leaders of the world. Right, thank you. Um, I think we'll do one last question because I know you're, you're running up on time. Um, and so this question is from um, Dr. Mary Alice Mazzara, who's the director of SUNY's Global Affairs Leadership Program. And she asks, um, what advice would you give to young women who want to become global leaders? Well, I will say, go for it. <laughs> uh, believe in yourself. Um, Be leaders the way you want to be leader. Because I have to tell you something, when I was, I was Minister of Defense, I have been the fifth Minister of Defense in the history of the world. That doesn't mean that I was fantastic, it means that how bad the situation was. So I had no question, I have been Minister of Health and I did it how I am, how you see me. And as Minister of Health, I have Defense the same. And my mother once heard me by the telephone talk to a colonel and said, please, colonel, could you bring me this thing? And my mother asked me, are you sure they're going to respect you if you speak to, to them in that way? And I said, uh -uh, I'm not going to behave like a man to be respected. I'm going to behave like I am, like a woman, but ask, there are different kinds of women, of course, because command, to command is to have, to know the right things, to good, make the good decisions, but you don't need to copy other kinds of leadership if that's not the way you feel that you are and it will become the best of you. And I think I did the right decision. And I think many women can do it very well in their own time. Maybe, maybe some can be more sort of more colorful. Maybe some can be more strong tone. And, and it depends, that doesn't matter. But important is that they do it they will be, they are capable, women are capable. Women will be always confronted to, to need to show that they're capable, things that men usually don't need to be confronted. But if women prepare well themselves, if other women who have been leaders can be, help them and mentor them, because they have to prepare, because now leadership and politics is very complicated and pretty nasty, if I would say. Huh? So I think if, if they're strong, if they're convinced they want to contribute to any cause, 
Um, they need to go for it. They need to also, I would say, um, build networks among women. Because when we were, when I was a minister, we were five women ministers in the cabinet. So we would call each other. We would talk to each other many times. If somebody was having a bad time, we would call them and say, okay, don't worry, but you can do it better next time and so on. So I think we need to build networks. And I, I, there's something that I learned when I was at, at Defense, there was this group of experts with the Americans and others, and they have this bulletin that says, women can do all, not all at the same time. So that you also need to know, but also that's not only on political leadership, I guess a woman who is a CEO of a company, probably um, she cannot be the best, how, I mean, housekeeper. <laughs> I mean, the, maybe some things will not be as good as before, but that you can do it. And just a little anecdote, when I was Minister of Health, I had a vice minister was a man. So I had three small kids. So in the morning I had to prepare the breakfast then I had to prepare the lunchbox. And then like three hours later, I, I mean, not later, not that I came late, but I, I have to wake up very late. late I, I have to bring it to school. So when I went at, at eight o'clock to the ministry, I mean, I have done a lot of things. My vice minister would tell me that he was having breakfast in bed that somebody provide him, took the shower, take the car and go. So, so probably for many women, this will be a challenge, but it can be done. It can be done that women needs the support of other women and I hope other men as well, but it can be done. And then I think the, don't give up and follow your convictions, but also try to have some time to enjoy. Thank you. Thank you very much for your leadership. Thank you everyone who attended today and for your wonderful questions. I'm just sorry we didn't have more time to get to all of them. There were a lot of really um, excellent questions on the chat box. Thank you for listening to Network 2020's audio edition of this virtual briefing. Click on the link in the description below to view all of our upcoming events and find out how you can become a member and gain access to our members-only benefits.